you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of God to us. May God bless the reading of his word. Please join me in the pastoral prayer. God, on this day that we gather to corporately worship you, the Lord of lords and King of kings, through partaking of the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would think rightly about communion. First, thank you, Jesus, for giving us communion, uh, giving communion to us as a reminder. In 1 Corinthians 24 and 25, twice the word remembrance is used, once for the bread and again for the cup. May our hearts feel the preciousness of remembering you and tremble at the prospect of ever forgetting you. Second, when we partake, we proclaim your death until you come again. If remembering means calling to mind what you did by your death, then proclaiming means calling out to each other what you did by your death. Jesus, may all who participate today worship with an authentic heart experience which says, this death and all it achieved is so valuable that it must not only be remembered, I must also proclaim it. Finally, the Lord's Supper expresses your infinite value by nourishing our life in you. As we turn to your table today, may we be able to say, by this, I nourish my life in you. By this, I share in all the grace that you brought for me with your own blood and body. Then the Lord's Supper will be deep and wonderful act of worship. Nothing shows your worth and preciousness so much as when we come to you eagerly to feed our hungry souls. You have graciously granted to us the essence of worship through the inner experience of treasuring your true beauty and worth. And the outward forms of worship you command us to do are the acts that show how much we treasure your beauty and worth. May each of us come to your table today, Lord Jesus, with readied hearts to express your infinite value by remembering, by proclaiming, and by nourishing. Lord, I not only pray for Pocosa Baptist Church, but also Petsworth Baptist Church and their pastor, John Pouchot. God, thank you for the commitment the Petsworth body has made uh, to planting churches. We ask that you bless their church plants, Ridgeview Church in Boone's Mill, and their pastor, Daniel Nav, and Crossroads Church in Whitestone, and their pastor, J.W. Harrington. We pray, Lord, that you would quickly grow them numerically and spiritually and cause them to be self-sustaining as a local body known for solid preaching and teaching of your word. And thank you for granting Pastor John this vision and providing him and his leadership team's wisdom and discernment as they faithfully make disciples across Virginia. Help John to lead your sheep well at Petsworth. Lord, we ask that you protect Petsworth from anything or anyone seeking to cause disunity from both within and without the church. Bring into the light any evil seeking to do harm and render it powerless. Father, we pray that Petsworth Baptist would continue to stand on your word firmly in the face of opposition. When the enemy opposes them, and he surely will, strengthen them to respond faithfully with love, 
prayer, vigilance, and focus on you. Cause them to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance and godly love for all of those around them. And God, we pray for America. And we do so by praying for our Attorney General Merrick Garland. Lord, as he represents the United States in legal matters and gives advice and opinions to the president and to the heads of the executive departments, we pray Mr. Garland would carry out all his duties with integrity and the good of the American people always in mind. God, only you truly know his heart. If he doesn't have a personal relationship with you, we ask for the Holy Spirit to move upon his heart and that he would come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. We pray Mr. Garland would come to know the true wisdom that comes only from you. And we ask for his heart to be humbled, that he would fear you, Lord, above all, and seek you in prayer and in scripture to know how to handle the important issues of the day. We thank you for the good gift of human government and for those you have sent to punish evildoers and to commend those who do good. In all he undertakes professionally and personally, strengthen our attorney general so that he may stand firm in your wisdom and not fold to political and cultural pressures, and therefore, in all things, glorify you, the true king. And we not only pray for America, but we also pray for the nation of Myanmar. Father, the realities are dire for the Myanmar people as they are facing a convergence of repressive military rule, civil war, food shortages, and disintegration of public education and health care. God, we pray for your mercy to be poured out on the Myanmar people and provide them resources as the military routinely violates human rights as it launches airstrikes and ground attacks against villages, schools, medical clinics, and public offices. God, your word repeatedly says you do not tolerate hands that shed innocent blood. So, Father, we ask that you let your justice flow like a river through Myanmar and ask that you establish a just government that will allow the people to be free at peace and provide a path for human flourishing for all. Even with the nation seemingly falling apart, local believers are faithfully serving the people in your name, and it's all to your glory, God. As conditions in Myanmar worsen, we pray, Lord, that believers would remain undaunted by daily hardships. We pray you would provide food for physical sustenance so that they would not grow weary and that through their continued faithful efforts, many countrymen would turn to you, Jesus, for lasting spiritual hope and peace. And regardless of what the future holds, we pray that this suffering nation will come to understand and claim your promise that if they trust in you, nothing shall separate them from the love of Christ, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Holy Spirit, and all these things help them to be more than conquerors through Christ who loves them. Now, Father, we pray for our pastor Hobson this morning. I ask that you uh, fill him with your peace and grant him boldness as he preaches. Holy Spirit, work through Hobson this morning and do what he can. Speak new life into, our, into your children to give us the light of the knowledge of our fullness in Christ. Grant us the grace to receive the word and rejoice in it. Convict us of our sins and Christ's sufficiency so that sinners repent, the weak are strengthened, and Christ's body is built up. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Morning, family.
Good to be with you. What I'm about to say next is going to make some of you think that I am very old, and others think that I am very young. The very first movie that Holly and I ever saw together as we were newly dating couple back in 2004 was a romantic comedy called Fifty First Dates. This is not an endorsement, by the way, just telling a story. In the movie Fifty First Dates, Adam Sandler plays a marine biologist named Henry Roth. He's a womanizer who is absolutely terrified of any form of commitment until he meets a girl named Lucy Whitmore, played by Drew Barrymore, and he falls in love. Now, some of you are probably thinking, spoiler alert, you've had 20 years to watch this movie. That's on you. So he falls in love with Lucy only to find out that Lucy had an accident years ago that destroyed her long-term memory. So every morning, Lucy wakes up and forgets everything that happened the day before. Hence the title, 50 First Dates. Every date with this girl is like the very first one. Every day, as he falls deeper and deeper in love with her, he has to work to help her remember. She doesn't even know who he is. And he works tirelessly to help her remember. Now, I share that with you because I think that many of us as Christians, are far more like forgetful Lucy than we like to admit. For example, we know that God exists, yet we often forget and live like He doesn't see our every action and know our every thought. We know we have an enemy who threatens to steal, kill, and destroy, and yet we forget and live as if we are in peacetime. When in reality, we're in the middle of a spiritual war. We know that we are sinners who are saved by grace alone, and yet we forget and we live like we have somehow deserved what we receive in Christ. We, we know that Jesus said, we just sung this a moment ago, on the cross, it is finished. And yet, how often do we forget and live as if there's something more that we need to do to really receive forgiveness? We, we know that Jesus is sovereign and in control, and yet we forget and often look at our world and act as it's spinning out of control. We know that Jesus is, he is the victor. He has won the victory. And yet, how often do we look at our world with great despair as if all hope is lost? We know that this world isn't our home. And that Jesus is returning to bring us to a new heavens and a new earth. And yet we forget how often do we live as if this world is all that there is. You and I, if we're honest, are much more like forgetful Lucy than we think. 
So is there anything that can help us, God's people? In His wisdom, Jesus knew the forgetful hearts of His disciples. And in His kindness, Jesus does not only know our forgetfulness, but He sees it and He provides for His disciples and for us today a way for us to remember. And He gives us a a simple symbol. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist or a sacrament or an ordinance. It's a symbol that is given to help us remember. If you're not already in your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew 26, beginning in verse 17. Last week, as we studied Matthew's gospel, it was Tuesday night, and Jesus had finished teaching His disciples about the end of the world. He reminded them that He was going to die, and then we watched as one of the disciples, Judas, goes to a secret meeting of the religious leaders and offers up Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The next day is Wednesday. The Bible tells us virtually nothing about what happened on Wednesday of Passover week. It's almost as if the entire world is taking a big, deep breath before the plunge that's about to happen. And here we are, Thursday afternoon, and Jesus is about to take the Passover meal with His disciples. And at that meal, in that very evening, Jesus will give His disciples a meal to remember. The big idea that I hope to communicate to you this morning from God's Word is that the Lord's Supper is not about ritual, but remembering what matters most. In our text, I want to show you six truths that the Lord's Supper should help us to remember. We're forgetful Lucy's. We forget. We keep forgetting. And Jesus, in His kindness, gave us this meal that ought to remind us of at least these six things every time we take it. Truth number one, not to be remembering as we take this meal, is Jesus' deity. Not to be remembering that Jesus is God. Before we even get to the meal that Jesus is about to celebrate with His disciples, Matthew illustrates for us why Jesus is God. Now, if it seems like we talk about that a whole lot, studying this gospel, that ought to say something to you. Matthew wants his readers to understand that Jesus is no ordinary human. He is God himself. Listen, brother, sister, friend, if Jesus is not God, he's not worth following, and he's not worth remembering. But if he is God, then he is worth everything. And Matthew wants us to see two simple reasons why Jesus is God in our text. He sets the stage for the Lord's Supper in verses 17 to 19. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, that's the Passover feast, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. 
Now remember that the Passover was a very important feast to the Jewish people. It celebrated how God rescued his people from slavery. You might remember the story. It's told in the book of Exodus. God sends 10 plagues to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. One after another, Pharaoh hardens his heart until finally the last 10th final plague. That the firstborn son in every household will die unless you take a spotless lamb and you slaughter it on your behalf and you take its blood and you spread it on the doorposts of your home. And that evening, every home with the blood of the lamb on the doorposts the angel of death would pass over that home and the family would be saved. Every home that did not apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost would lose the firstborn son. So the festival was called Passover to remember this passing over of wrath and judgment over all who were under the blood of the lamb. How do those verses remind us that Jesus is God? Two simple things I want you to see. First, those verses demonstrate that Jesus is God because he controls the little details. Now, the law of Moses required the people of God to celebrate the Passover in the city of Jerusalem. So it's Passover week, and there's millions of Jews who are scattered all across the Roman world that come into the city to celebrate Passover. Think about how hard it would be to get a place in the city to celebrate. And the disciples, it's almost like last minute, all of a sudden it dawns on them. We've been staying in Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We can't be in Bethany tonight. We had to go into the city. Jesus, where do you want us to go? Where are we going to celebrate the Passover? Have any of you who have ever been to a big city for a festival or a concert or a, or a sporting event and forgot to book lodging until the last minute? You might know the panic that's actually bubbling up in the disciples in this moment. Jesus, what do you want us to do? Jesus is not the least bit worried. Jesus says, go into the city. You're going to find a man. Mark's gospel tells us they would see a man carrying a water jug. He would have stood out. It'd be kind of like seeing a man carrying a purse. Men didn't really carry water jugs. Jesus says, you're going to find this man carrying a water jug. Go to him. Tell him the master has need of your house, and he's got it all set up for you. What's the point? Jesus is sovereign over little details. The odds of them seeing that man at that moment, and he would be the man who had it all set up for them, are astronomical. And yet Jesus can do that because Jesus is God. Now, if that seems relatively unimpressive to you, consider a second way these verses remind us of Jesus' deity. The first, Jesus has control of the little details. The second way is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the big picture. Now, here's what I mean. In a few moments, as we continue studying the text together, Jesus is going to be taking the Passover meal with his disciples. Part of the Passover meal included a cup of wine, actually multiple cups of wine, and unleavened bread. In the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus is going to take the Passover bread and say, this is my body. He's going to take the Passover cup and say, this is my blood. 
Now, if that doesn't startle you a bit, think of this. Uh, let's say you have a friend from another country, doesn't know a lot about America, visiting you in early July. And they happen to be here on the 4th of July when Americans celebrate our independence by blowing up things and grilling hot dogs and hamburgers. Now, let's just imagine we're in a group of people, maybe you bring them to church one Sunday, and they ask you, what's the meaning of all these explosions in the sky and all these hot dogs and brats and burgers? What's the point? And what if I eavesdropped on your conversation and interrupted and said, oh, I'll tell you the point. All of that stuff is pointing to me. You would say, what? Actually, it's pointing to something that happened 250 years ago. There was this massive thing called the Declaration of Independence. It's a big deal. There was a war, life-changing, world-changing events. It's not pointing to me. It's pointing to that. Jesus comes along, and he looks at a festival bigger than the 4th of July. Americans, it's hard for us to believe, but it's true. Bigger than the 4th of July. Something that celebrated Moses leading the people out of bondage 1,500 years earlier. And Jesus says, all of that is pointing to me. That is absolutely crazy, unless it's true. If you look at the big picture of the Bible, it's clear that the first Passover was only a shadow pointing us to the true and greater Passover. Here's what I mean. In the first Passover... God rescued his people from bondage to Pharaoh. In the true and greater Passover, God rescues us from bondage to Satan, sin, and death. In the first Passover, God's people were temporarily rescued. If you read the story of the Jewish people, they're enslaved over and over again. But in the true and greater Passover, God rescues his people eternally. <coughs> in the first Passover... The beloved son of Pharaoh is slaughtered, leading to great sorrow all across Egypt. But in the true and greater Passover, the beloved son of God himself is put to death and leading to great salvation for the people of God. In the first Passover, God rescued his people by the blood of a lamb. In the true and greater Passover, God rescues his people through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the first Passover, God rescued the Jewish people, but in the true and greater Passover, God rescued people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. No wonder the New Testament later says that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. It's not crazy or blasphemous for Jesus to say, all this is pointing to me if that was actually always the plan. And it was. So what lessons should we learn as we prepare to, to celebrate communion this morning? If you have not submitted to Jesus as God, don't take the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing 
It's meant to symbolize outwardly something that's already happened inwardly in your life. You ought not to receive the symbol that celebrates Jesus as God if you do not believe that Jesus is God. If you have not submitted to Jesus as God. If you want the symbol but not what it represents, you're like the gold-digging woman that wants an engagement ring without a husband. So, dear friend, if that's you this morning, we would plead with you to repent and believe, to, to look to Jesus as the perfect, sinless Son of God, to believe that He really died in your place to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay, and to trust Him, to give Him your life, and then to make that public through baptism. You can do that here next Sunday, if the Lord's leading you to do that. And then the next time we take the Lord's Supper, take it with us. If you'd like to talk to someone more about any of that, one of our pastors will be at the white flag in a few moments towards the end of the service. We'd love for you to go and talk with him. Let him pray with you and give you some counsel on what it means to follow Jesus and submit to him as Lord. Now, most of us in this room have submitted to Jesus as Lord and God. I want you to hear me clearly. I am not saying that you shouldn't take Passover, or I'm sorry, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper if you struggle sometimes with doubts about the deity of Jesus. I believe that the Lord's Supper is one of the things that actually helps to strengthen our faith. The bread isn't magical. The juice isn't magical. But as we take it in faith, our faith is strengthened. So if you're here as a follower of Jesus who sometimes struggles with doubt, here's what I would say to you. Take the Lord's Supper. If, if you were struggling physically in your life, you were just having a bad week, would you abstain from food until things got better? No. Of course not. In fact, that's going to make you worse. That's going to make you hangry, right? That's the thing that actually might make you feel better. And the Lord's Supper, too, is one of the things that God has designed to help grow our faith. Lord's Supper is not about ritual, but remembering what matters most. It's meant to remind us of Jesus' deity. But number two, it also helps us to remember our sin. <coughs> As the disciples reclined around the table to celebrate the Passover, Jesus drops a bombshell in verses 20 and 21. When it was evening, He reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if you were with us last week, we watched as Judas went to the religious leaders and agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver for the price of a slave. We also learned last week that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that was going to betray him. But you know who didn't know? The disciples. The disciples. I told you last week, Judas wasn't like walking around wearing a black robe. He didn't have like big, pointy eyebrows. He wasn't an obvious villain. Darth Vader's Imperial March didn't play every time he walked into the room, okay? In fact, they trusted Judas. 
We know from the other Gospels that Judas was actually the group treasurer. You don't give the money over to the shadiest guy in the group, do you? He was trustworthy. And so, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples, by the way, they're not expecting any of them to betray Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus tells them this, and they're absolutely devastated. Look at verse 22. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? That phrase, very sorrowful, is used to signify a violent emotion, or even shock. This is not just, oh man, that's a bummer. I mean, these guys are devastated. Think about what they've been through in the past few days. They learn the temple's going to be destroyed. They learn that Jesus is going to leave them and then eventually come back, but there's going to be a lot of suffering before that happens. They learn that he's going to die right after the Passover. And now, the final blow that actually brings them to the point of violent emotional shock is when Jesus says, one of you guys who's dipping the bread in the same herbs that I'm dipping mine in, one of you is going to betray me. Absolutely shocked. The disciples begin to ask Jesus, is it going to be me? Am I going to be the one? Dan Doriani writes, as much as each disciple was horrified at the thought, each knew he could betray Jesus. The potential for unfaithfulness dwells in every disciple, then and now. That is why Jesus had to go to the cross. So dear brothers, sisters, friends, what should we learn from this as we prepare to celebrate communion? When we take communion, we should work to remember our sin. I want to say that again because I think that seems strange to many of us. As we prepare to come to the table to take communion, you should work to remember your sin. If we're honest, those are the very things we want to forget. Let me bury that as far back into my past as I can and never think about it again. I think that we ought to actually think on it as we prepare to take communion. Charles Spurgeon, I think, explains why. He says, do not try to forget your old sins. Let them ever be before you to keep you humble. Look at the pit out of which you were dug, and when God gives you any special mercy, say to yourself, what a miracle of grace is this, for I was among the most undeserving of all. Could it be, Christians, could it be one of the reasons why we yawn at the cross is because we've been yawning at our sin? We've been thinking that there's a long time that's happened since then. What if we actually remembered our sin? What if by doing that we would see the glory and the beauty of the cross, those shameful things we've thought and said and done? Christ died for that. We ought to remember 
like the disciples, we should also examine ourselves. We should ask Jesus to reveal new sins to us. Notice they all say, Jesus, is it going to be me? The Apostle Paul makes this explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talking about communion. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we take the Lord's Supper, there should be a time in our preparation when we examine ourselves and say, God, show me any sin in my heart that I haven't confessed. And then when He shows it to us, you know what we shouldn't do? We shouldn't say, woe is me, lost and undone am I. We should say, forgive me. And then we should rejoice because Christ promises us in His Word, if we confess our sins, He is what? Faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. We confess it, we say, God, I'm sorry, and then we rejoice that that too, that too was under the blood of the Lamb. And that's glorious good news. So we examine ourselves, we remember our sin. Now if you look at verses 23 to 25, I won't read it again, but Jesus reveals that it's Judas, he's the one that's going to betray him. But you know what's interesting? None of the Gospels say that any of the disciples tried to stop Judas. Judas asks Jesus, is it going to be me? And he knows it's him, and Jesus says, you have said it. But it's almost as if nobody else is even paying attention, because Judas just leaves and nobody tries to stop him. Nobody says anything. Why is that? Well, I can't say for sure, but perhaps the disciples were so shocked and overwhelmed with grief that they didn't even register Jesus' conversation with Judas. And perhaps even there is a lesson for how we should examine ourselves. So often we're tempted to examine ourselves and think, well, I also hope so-and-so's listening. Forget about so-and-so. Don't even think about so-and-so. What about you? What about your heart? Perhaps there should be such a laser focus on my own sin and my own heart that everything else around me fades into nothingness, and it's me and Jesus. And I see my sin, and I see all of it, and I see my Savior, and I rejoice because He has forgiven me, and it is finished. But even if the disciples are a good example in this one moment, it's not going to last, which I think is good news for us. In verse 31, we'll look at this next week, Jesus tells his disciples, all of you are going to fall away from me tonight. And in verse 35, every single one of the other 11 say, no, we won't, Jesus. What's the lesson? The lesson for you and I is this. You are not saved or kept by how good you do at examining yourself. Guess what? You're not going to examine yourself perfectly. You're going to mess up that too. And yet, you can do it truly. You can truly examine yourself even in your sin and say, Jesus, help me. And he is the one that holds on to his disciples. He prays to the Father, none of them will be lost. And none of them will be. So remember our sin as we take the Lord's Supper. Number three, <coughs> we need to remember Jesus' sacrifice. We need to remember Jesus' sacrifice. 
at some point during the Passover meal, probably after Judas had left to put his evil plan in motion, Jesus introduces the meal that today we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Now look at your Bibles beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There have been many disagreements over the past 2,000 years about what Jesus meant when he said, This is my body, and this is my blood. Sadly, some Christians have even killed each other over their different interpretations of what that means. Some of our friends think that Jesus is referring to the cup and the bread kind of magically transforming into the literal body and blood of Jesus. I don't think that's at all what Jesus means here. I think it makes much more sense to understand Jesus using these words symbolically. Think about the way Jesus talks about himself. Jesus says, I am the door. But nobody goes up to Jesus and looks for hinges or a, a doorknob. We know when Jesus says, I am the door, he means you got to come through me to get to the Father. Jesus also says, I am the vine. And nobody tries to pluck grapes off of Jesus. Because what he means is that life is found by being connected to him, it's a symbol. So the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he's going to make. In just a few hours from this moment in the story, Jesus' body will be crushed for the sake of his people. He's going to be punched, spat upon, slapped by the religious leaders. They're going to pluck out chunks of his beard Roman soldiers are going to flog him with a cat of nine tails, lacerating his back. They're going to twist up a crown of big thorns, shove it on his head, and beat him on the head with reeds. His body is going to be crushed, and his blood is going to flow as nails are driven through his stretched out hands and into his feet and as a spear is jammed into his side. If you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you're familiar with at least some of the physical horrors of the cross. But as powerful as that movie was, it couldn't convey the real horror of the cross. The real horror of the cross is not what Jesus endured, but why. Why did he endure it? Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Because God is holy and just, 
All of our sin must be punished. But because God is loving and merciful, He wants to forgive. So how can both things work? How is God able to show mercy without compromising His justice? The answer is the cross. On the cross, justice and mercy kiss. On the cross, God's justice is poured out on the Son. He is smitten and stricken and afflicted by God the Father. And all the punishment that we deserve for our sin is poured out on Jesus in our place. And as a result, if our faith is in Christ, there is no more condemnation left for us because it was finished on that cross. That's the good news of the gospel. So, what lessons should we learn from this as we prepare to take communion? Christian, communion is a precious gift to remind you just how much Jesus loves you. I hope you know that. One of the things that I often pray when you come to my table and I pray over you before communion is that God would help us to measure His love by the cross and not our circumstances. You ever had a bad day and wonder, God, why me? Why did you let this happen to me? God, don't you love me? You might not say it out loud, but you thought it. Communion is meant to remind you the place where God shows you His love most clearly is at the cross. That's where we see His love. Not in our circumstances, not in how you feel today, but in what He did 2,000 years ago. So remember His sacrifice. Number four, we ought to remember our need. We ought to remember our need. Uh, the Passover meal was filled with all sorts of interesting food items that Jesus could have used to represent His sacrifice. For instance, they take bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter bondage of slavery. They eat the lamb that blood was spread on, on the doorposts to remind them of the sacrifice that was substituted in their place. Jesus could have said the Lord's Supper is bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of sin and, and lamb's meat to remind you of my sacrifice. But instead, Jesus took bread and cup. What's the significance of bread and cup? The bread was a common everyday staple. This was a part of the regular diet for every Jewish person, which is why when Jesus taught us in the Lord's Supper, He says, give us this day our daily what? Bread. That's your food. Just basic daily food. And wine, the, the fruit of the vine, especially in a day without clean drinking water, that was an essential. And so Jesus doesn't take luxury food items and turn that into the Lord's Supper. He doesn't take some exotic cuisine and turn it into the Lord's Supper. He takes something basic, bread and wine. I think even in that, there's a lesson for us. We, we don't need to come to the table expecting some sort of spiritual high. Come to the table and expect that you're going to get bread and cup. Basic. Just a basic, everyday reminder that Jesus loves you and you belong to Him. 
And just as a first century Jew needed bread and wine to survive, you need Jesus to survive, Christian. Don't avoid the table because you've had a bad week. Would you stop eating if you had a bad week? Of course not. If you belong to Jesus, take communion. If you had a bad week, confess any sin that you need to confess, and then rejoice that you're forgiven and take. Because this is a reminder of our need for Jesus. Number five, when we take the Lord's Supper, we should remember the new covenant. Look at verse 28. Jesus says of the cup, this is my blood of the covenant. In Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus says, the cup that it, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We read about the new covenant as we began our service this morning. Now, if you were in the room with the disciples that night, that phrase, new covenant, would be absolutely loaded with significance. A covenant, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a promise. And the Old Testament is filled with promises that God made to His people. And usually a covenant promise came with a covenant sign. Just like in marriage, when a husband and wife make a covenant, there's often a, a wedding ring, a sign of the covenant. So when God called Abraham to himself and made a covenant with Abraham, he said, here's the sign of the covenant. Eight days old, every male baby is to be circumcised to show he's a part of the covenant. And then when God comes along to Moses and reaffirms that covenant, he says, here's a sign of this covenant. You take the Passover every single year to say to people, I'm still a part of the covenant community. And the New Testament comes along and says, now we have a new covenant, and this new covenant still has signs, outward signs that show you're a part of the covenant people of God. What are the signs? First is the sign of baptism. Baptism functions a lot like circumcision in the Old Testament. It's the sign that you do one time to say to the world, I'm a part of the covenant people of God. What's different between baptism in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant is that it's not just boys that receive the sign of the covenant, and it's everybody who believes, and it's not something that happens at birth but at new birth, when you put your faith in Jesus, you make it public through baptism. The Lord's Supper functions much like Passover in the Old Covenant. It's the sign that says to the world, I'm still a part of the family of God. Now, it might help with an analogy. Um, think about baptism and the Lord's Supper like putting on a team jersey. Uh, when the Carolina Panthers drafted Bryce Young with the number one pick, there was a, a public ceremony. Bryce put on his Panthers jersey, and all the Panthers fans watching the draft there in the building cheered, right? Bryce Young puts on the jersey. That's the initial sign. I'm a part of the team. Now, that's great for Bryce Young to do that, but guess what he has to do every Sunday? He's got to put the jersey back on and go out and play, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper are kind of like that. Baptism is the, the, the outward 
public, <coughs> excuse me, outward public display. I'm a part of the covenant community of God. And then the Lord's Supper is that weekly or monthly or however often a church does it, display that says, I'm still a part of the people of God. We need to think about covenant as we take the Lord's Supper. Now, the Panthers have been struggling this year. I like to remind my son Jonah, who's a huge Panthers fan, that they're the only team in the NFL that hasn't won yet. Now, let's just say that I wanted to help the Panthers out. And so I went to NFL.com and purchased an authentic Carolina Panthers jersey. And I get Buteau. That's my last name, by the way. Some of you didn't know that. Buteau on the back. And I go. I think they're playing the Lions today. Get a quick flight to Detroit. Put my jersey on and walk onto the field and say, guys, I'm here. Help you all out. Now, I can try to do that as much as I want. We could argue how helpful I'll be. But they're not going to recognize me on that field. Why not? It's one thing to put on a jersey. It's another thing to first have that public ceremony that re- where the team recognizes you as a jersey wearer, right? In the same way, Baptist churches have traditionally believed that Baptism happens first. That's the public ceremony that says, I'm a part of the family of God. Authorized by the church who've heard their testimony. And then the Lord's Supper to say, I'm still a part of this team. So consider our own denomination's statement of faith and what it says about baptism and the Lord's Supper. I know this has been a point of confusion for some of you. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. Baptism first, Lord's Supper second. So what lessons do we need to take away from that? We, when we take this meal... We need to think in bigger terms than you and Jesus. Think you and the covenant people of God and Jesus. This is not a meal for you and family devotions. This is not a meal for you and the Sunday school class or a youth camp trip. This is a meal for the church. And we shouldn't take the Lord's Supper if you haven't first received Jesus or made public your reception of Jesus through baptism. So again, if you're interested in baptism, if you haven't first made it public there, we invite you to talk to one of our pastors today. We'd love to baptize you next Sunday. And then the next time we take Lord's Supper, you take it with us because you're part of the team. If you've been baptized as a believer, you should take the Lord's Supper And you should remember this new covenant and this new covenant people. You shouldn't just think about you and Jesus, but you and Jesus and the family. Taking the Lord's Supper without thinking about each other would be kind of like a husband eating the wedding cake by himself. It's not meant for just you. It's meant for you and her. And this is a meal for us together. So we remember the new covenant covenant. 
Number six, remember Jesus' return. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we should remember that things are not yet as they should be. That Jesus is not yet around a table with all of His people, but that day is coming. And we're going to drink and eat and feast with our King Jesus and never be separated from Him ever again. Although forgetful Lucy's memory was never completely cured, eventually Henry Roth had a breakthrough. It didn't happen when Lucy tried to remember. There wasn't a pill that she took. There wasn't a procedure that she had done. Lucy learned to remember only when she saw who she was and who it was that loved her. And she began to remember. By looking to the one who loved her, she began to remember. I think there's a lesson for us there, Christian. Our, our main job when we take this meal is not to think about remembering. You're going to mess that up too. I'm going to mess it up too. You may be thinking, I've got to remember all these six things. It's hard enough for me to remember when I'm supposed to come to the table and what I'm supposed to do with a cup. The point is that we look to Jesus. As we look to the one who us, we remember and we rejoice in what we've received in Christ. And Matthew 26, verse 30 says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in just a moment, we're going to sing a song, and after that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. If you're not taking the Lord's Supper today, either because you're not yet a believer or you haven't yet been baptized as a believer, would you consider talking with one of our pastors about the next steps that you can take? We'd love to help you think through and pray through that. One of us will be waiting at the white flag in just a moment. If you're not ready to talk to someone about that today, uh, you're welcome to stay in your seat when folks come to the front to take communion. If you'd prefer, you're also welcome to dismiss yourself. We don't want you to leave, but parents are going to be getting up to collect kids from the nursery. There's going to be lots of movement. Nobody's going to look be looking at you or judging you if you decide to uh, take a quick exit when we stand in just a moment to sing. Let's pray, and then we'll sing together and take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved Son. Jesus, we thank you that you 